Greetings of love in the name of Jesus this morning. Glad we can be gathered together in the uh, opportunity for um, be here in freedom to worship the Lord without fear of the authorities coming and disturbing our worship or arresting us. It's something we don't often think about, but it is the case in so many situations across the world today. I've thought of this message for a few weeks already. I'd like to share what the Lord has laid on my heart this morning to start with a few questions. If you would be called tomorrow to appear before a military draft board, would you qualify as a conscientious objector? Would you be able to defend your conscientious objector claim with your knowledge of Scripture and with a lifestyle that proves you really are a genuine conscientious Christian? Would you be able to explain the difference of God's people in war in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? Which is a question that often came up in those interviews or interrogations. I'd like to think this, this morning about what the scriptural teaching on non-resistance I'd like to say here before I, unless I forget later, if there would be a draft today here in North America, I'm talking about U.S. and Canada, one of the biggest differences would be that the, probably the women would be called drafted as well as the men. Maybe not exactly the same way. If there would be children in the home, that would probably be an exemption. But young women would be drafted along with the men. That is in place already. And I don't raise the, this this morning to uh, incite any fear or apprehension in our hearts, but rather because it is a reality. Well, I should, I should say it this way. It is a pot, the, the reality is a possibility. And it's happened before. And it can come almost out of the blue. If, for instance, you understand the term NATO. NATO is a North, North, um, see, NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. That um, basically it means all the nations that have signed that agreement, which is Canada, U.S., and most of the, almost all the Western nations, Europe. Japan, some of those, that the agreement is that one an attack on one is an attack on all. So if there would be an attack by a hostile nation against any NATO nation, any NATO member, it would automatically mean that all the NATO nations are at war. For instance, say for, um, for some reason, uh, just say... Germany or France or Turkey would be attacked by a hostile nation, that would automatically put all NATO members at war, which means that Canada, U.S., all the NATO nations would immediately need to 
gear up for all that war. Which, if you think about it, and all the, this is in the hands of God, and we don't live in fear of any of this, but it does mean that there is a possibility that could happen. Only God knows that. But in light of the, um, the wars and rumors of wars, I guess I'll say it that way, the shadow of war, the chatter about a third world war, even gearing up for the quite possible existence of a world, another world war, does raise this, these questions in our minds. And as a people of God, we need to fortify ourselves. We need to be sure that we are clear on these doctrines, we're clear on these issues, and not wait till we're right up against it and then have to somehow figure out where we stand. I think it's just good to think about some of these questions and to consider and analyze our own convictions. Where, where do we stand on this? And as a, um, most of us here from Anabaptist descent of one way or another, or have taken on that um, interpretation of, of Scripture, um, we, don't, we do not believe in just war. We do not believe in just war. Many of our Protestant friends believe in just war. That there is a time and place to defend your country and to punish evil. But as a Christian people, um, there's a long heritage of, of a stand against such things. And we're going to look at that. Jesus has told us that some of the conditions of the last days will include wars and rumors of wars Nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. It's probably a few months ago I asked the question one time um, what our congregation would look like if all the able-bodied men were, had been drafted and are absent. Uh, just something to think about. It's happened before. It's happened a lot in almost every generation before us. We have not seen it. You know, I grew up as a boy under the clouds of the Cold War, and uh, remember that very distinctly, the threat of war. Remember, um, as a boy sitting on the front porch, I think I've told you this before probably, but it's imprinted on my mind. I was probably eight or nine years old, sitting on the front porch of our, in the evening, it was just getting cool outside, the sun had gone down. Actually, all of us were sitting out there that night because we heard the planes, and there was wave after wave of fighter jets flying in. I grew up in the East Coast, close to Washington, D.C. Wave after wave of fighter jets coming in from the west into Fort Andrews Air Base because of the uh, threat from Russia through, uh, of course, Cuba at that time. And uh, sitting there, and I know, you know, hearing my parents discuss this whole situation, Distinctly remember our neighbor, who was a German man who lived through World War II, fought in World War II, and he always often told my father, you need to build a bomb shelter. He had a bomb shelter fully equipped in his basement, submarine door on it, gas masks and food and everything. But anyway, I distinctly remember my father saying, you know what, I trust the Lord, and if there's nuclear war, I'd rather go with the first blast than die later of radiation. 
It's just things that, that is imprinted on your mind as, in growing up. Um, <clears throat> well, there's no doubt that there's a lot of talk and threat of war in the world right now. Whether God will allow another world war, I do not know. But the promise of the last days is that it's going to get worse, not better. So what all that means, we don't know. But Jesus clearly told us that. And not that we live in fear of that. I, you know, it's the people of God have gotten through it before with the strength and help of God, and we would again as well. But it could mean a lot of changes. In church history, whenever the clouds of war appeared on the horizon, the church many times, most times, tried to raise the issues to help fortify our people, ourselves, on this doctrine. Besides the scriptures, the example of Jesus himself at the cross and that whole experience, there's those accounts that help us and encourage us as well as a lot of stories about men who faced a lot of suffering because they would not fight. Growing up as a boy, the bishop of our congregation, elderly, grandfatherly man, um, Lloyd Niss, uh, was a man who suffered a lot in World War I because he refused to cooperate with military training in any way. There's a book written, possibly you've read it or seen it, It's a book written, uh, Why I Couldn't Fight. He set the stage, or in a sense the example, for a lot of young men in the military camp when he was drafted. World War I, there was not a really a a, um, CO program, conscientious objector program, and so he faced uh, a lot of abuse. He was kicked and beaten, abused in many ways, but he refused to report the abusive officers to the authorities in Washington uh, because he said that would be retaliation and revenge on my part towards them if I did that. And so he took it. He, he bore it and, um, and suffered throughout the war. When he was finally released at the end of the war, he stepped off the train in Pittsburgh, and one of the officers that had badly mistreated him in the army camp came up to him and said, I heard that you were returning on this train today. And he said, I came because I wanted to meet you and apologize for the way I treated you in camp. And Lloyd told him, he said, he said, I, I held no grudge toward you. He said, there is really nothing to forgive. And that, was, that was his motto. That's, that's the way he lived. Another thing to re- remember and think about is, one of the important things that happens in time of war, and you'll, you can go back and read this in history, um, is that when a nation is at war, there's usually very rapid social changes that can happen from one day to the next, almost overnight. Neighbors that have, where we've lived side by side with for many, many years, excellent relationship, maybe even share farming equipment, things like that. Excellent relationship. That relationship can change overnight. And it's something just to to think about. My great-great-grandfather experienced this in World War I. He was a young father with uh, several children, 
my grandfather was about four years old when this happened. But there was a lot of pressure on to buy war bonds, which is how the U.S. government financed the war. So it would be like buying a stock. So it was like it was called war bonds. And um, the government still sells government bonds today. But um, <clears throat> there was a pressure on to buy war bonds. And my, the neighbors of my great-grandfather put a lot of pressure on him to buy war bonds, which he refused because it would have been support for the war. And the other thing that went into this was that my great-great, my great-grandfather was a German. He came from German immigrants. And of course, the war was against Germany. And so the German immigrants or descendants from the Germans were considered sort of, uh, uh, could be almost traitors in a sense, especially if they did not cooperate with the United States against the German war or in the German war. Anyway, um, one afternoon, the neighbors had become so enraged, the neighbor men, one afternoon a group of them came to the farmhouse asking for my grandfather, great-grandfather. My great-grandmother went to the door carrying one of the babies or one of the children. My grandfather was a four-year-old, frightened four-year-old, hanging onto her skirts, we were told. And they asked for my great-grandfather where he was, and she didn't know where he was right then. He wasn't in the house. So they left. But before they left, um, well, I should say the reason they came to get him was they were going to tar and feather him and parade him through the streets of Linnitz, local town. When you tar and feather somebody, you pour hot tar over them, and then you roll them in, th- in feathers. It was to... Yeah, humiliation. It was an old way of punishment. Very, it's hot tar, so it burns you. But, um, so they didn't find him, and so they poured yellow paint, or splashed yellow paint on the side of the barn on the walk up to the house, which was then a symbol that he was a traitor. He was, a, he was yellow, which means a coward. Um, and th- these were men that were his neighbors that they farmed with, and had a good relationship all those years. Just turn on him. That, that uh, situation has been repeated over and over again. You think about Europe and some of those situations where um, Corey Tenboom had, her family was Jewish and they grew up in, was in Berlin there and, you know, a lot of friends in the neighborhood until the war came. And then they became enemies can change very rapidly. I remember as a boy, we were, I'm not sure how old I was, but we went to the old farm to see, there's a little bit of yellow paint we can still see on the sidewalk. Uh, remnants of that experience. Some of you are here from Hutterite background. 1918, four young married Hutterite men were drafted from South Dakota into the U.S. Army because of their refusal to participate in any kind of military training or activities. One of the things that they were trying to make them do, which also goes back to my old bishop there in boyhood days, but they refused to put on an army uniform because they believed that by submitting to the fact of putting on an army uniform was already starting to give in to identify with the army. And that's where they drew the line. They refused to put on the, the, the uniform. These four young 
married Hutterite men also refused to put on the army uniform. They were court-martialed eventually, uh, abused severely, uh, sentenced to 37 years in military prison, um, tortured. They were sent to Alcatraz for a, a period of time. They were tied up in prison with their arms above their heads, just enough that they can barely have their feet on the floor um, for nine hours a day because they wouldn't put on their army uniform. Their clothes were taken away from them. So they were just in their underwear, and there was cold water dripping through the prison walls there in Alcatraz um, uh, on them. No blankets, no heat. Eventually, they were transferred to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, where two of them died. And by the Hutterites, even today, their graves are there in South Dakota, and it says martyr on there, because the Hutterites believe that they died from their abuse in prison. The um, that's is it quite a story. There's a book written by that uh, on that. All right, let's look at some scriptures. John 18. which I think is foundational in our understanding of non-resistance in the kingdom of Christ. John 18 and verse 36. This is Jesus answering to Pilate. When Pilate said, um, Art thou a king then? In verse 33. And then in verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. My kingdom is not of this world. That's why my servants do not fight. Very clear, very clear scripture. Now, let's turn back to Matthew 5 and verse 38. Matthew 5.38, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, you punch me, I punch you. That's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. For whatsoever, But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain, two miles. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them which hate that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect." Let's go back to 1 Peter 2. Verse 
1 Peter 2 and verse 19. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience, conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no guile, neither was who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going, going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. <clears throat> and then I'll just read this one. Romans twelve fourteen, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, what is non-resistance? The term non-resistance is taken from Matthew 5. There we read that. Where Jesus tells us to resist not evil. The word itself is not in the King James Version of the English Bible. But it's a word that is derived from the term Resist not evil. In other words, not, not resist. So non-resistance. This means not resisting evil toward us in any form, whether militarily or personally. It means showing genuine love to all, any friend or foe. And also, we don't have time to go into this in depth, but it is an interesting study in relation to the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I said that that's one of the questions that often comes up. Because I, a, um, a draft, uh, a parole officer will say, don't you believe the Old Testament? And we say, well, yes. They say, well, what about uh, King David? What does the Bible say about King David? Well, he was a man after God's own heart. And David was told to go out and kill his enemies. And he was a man after God's own heart. How can you say it's, it's wrong for you to go out you know, and, and kill these people that are trying to overthrow the country? That's those, those questions, and they go round and round on that. So we need to have it clear, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So during the Old Testament time, God allowed and even at times commanded his people to go to war and to execute punishment. That was under the Old Testament covenant. 
But in the New Testament, Jesus commands us to love our enemies. We read those verses. And um, it hath been said, but I say unto you, there's a change in covenant, and therefore there's a change in the law, there's a change in, the, in God's working with man. We're to overcome, like we read there in Romans 12, we're to overcome evil with good. We don't overcome evil with force. That would be an argument that those who believe in just war would hold. And so these teachings and commands are for the church, for the Christian, and are not for the unbeliever in the state. And we'll get into that in, in a moment, but, but um, this doctrine, we need to remember, does not only just involve not participating in military service. When we think about non-resistance and the doctrine of non-resistance, it's not just about not going to war. It's a lot more than that. And if we only think of it as not participating in, in the military, in the army, we're going to lose it because it, it's a lot more than that. It involves our attitudes and our view of authority over us and respect for civil leaders and, and of how we talk about each other in the church and how we relate to each other and if we hold a grudge. and All those things are related to the doctrine of non-resistance. And so we have to think of it in, the, in its practical form in, in everyday life. It's how we relate to their neighbors and, and uh, how we uh, feel toward them. And what, when we, we are wronged or somebody takes advantage of us, you know, how do we feel about that? That proves whether we are really non-resistance. Now, another term that is often used and sometimes confused with non-resistance is pacifism. And most... Um, people would view us as pacifists, when, which is actually inaccurate, because um, pacifism is a different view, a different term than non-resistance. The dictionary defines pacifism as opposition to war or violence, as a means of settling disputes. And so pacifism is, comes from the word peace. Um, you mothers know what a pacifier is. You know, you give it to your child to uh, quiet them down and, and hopefully have some peace for a while. Um, <clears throat> so pacifism is, is the, the whole thought is that you have to, you have to somehow use peace to, comp, uh, to, um, to settle all disputes so that there would not be war. And on the surface, it sounds right. But the problem is, it, it does not clearly define the reason for non-resistance. Pacifism can be very political. And I remember, you know, when I was younger, you know, the Vietnam War and all the demonstrations and the, all, the, all the protests and violent protests, they were pacifists that used, that ended up using many times violence to somehow get peace. And that's the contradiction of, of pacifism. Because you can justify the means because of the end. And so um, that was very, you look at history, that was very prominent during the Vietnam War era. And so there's all, often, often activism as... Um, uh, an activism that is a part of the pacifistic uh, viewpoint. I remember, um, I'm not sure how many years ago it was, it's quite a few number of years now, maybe 30-some years. I remember that, that MCC, Mennonite Central Committee, 
which at one time would have been a non-resistant organization, but MCC actually changed and from a non-resistant or basis organization to a pacifistic organization, and they actually allowed and promoted demonstrations and peace protests against the government in relation to war. And there was just, just a, there was a shift, you know, in thinking, and that changed the whole dynamic. The um, anti-war protesters are often pacifists. Now, another question sometimes comes up in relation to non-combatant service. So in the military terms, there's combatant service and there's non-combatant service. Combatant service is when someone trains to, to use armaments and to uh, be on the battlefield, whether um, the Army, Navy, Air Force, um, and you actually are involved in the operation of killing the enemy. That's combatant service. Non-combatant service is where you are not on the front lines. You still have the same training. You still need to know how to use a rifle and all of that. But non-combatant service is you're driving supply trucks or you're working in a uh, military hospital or uh, you're working for the military, but you're not on the front lines. A lot of pacifists have, uh, in under pressure, in time of... Um, of draft, and a lot of uh, Protestant Christians have elected to take that route and just go non-combatant service, feeling that way they're not actually involved in killing somebody. Um, I would say, in general, non-resistant people have always said that that's wrong, that, that non-combatant service is still an arm of the, of the military. You're working for the military, you're feeding the military, you're driving for the military, you're, you're working for the military, you're wearing a, a military uniform, you still have to go through basic uh, military training, boot camp, you still have to know how to use a rifle in case you're near the front lines and get ambushed. So non-combatant service is normally thought of as still working for the military and not a part of the non-resistant position. These men, I've talked about some of the men that suffered at the hands of the military because of their non-resistance stand. They could have gone the route of non-combatant. They would have had to wear the uniform, still had basic training, and done all of that, but they would not have been sent to the front lines normally. Now, <clears throat> I think that it's important to understand this distinction of non-resistance and pacifism. I'll give you an illustration. How many of you ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? I enjoy some of his writings, especially the earlier writings, where I think he was more doctrinally sound. One of his books, I think, is one of the best of his books, is The Cost of Discipleship, where he talks about the um, snare of casual Christianity and all of that. That's a pretty good writing. What is sad about Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, in World War II, he was a pastor of a German church. He basically took a, a, a separation of church and state position. And at one time, he would have actually also took a pretty straight position on non-resistance, at least the strong 
pacifists, but I think even in the line of separation of church and state and therefore the two-kingdom principle. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer got caught up in the, in the emotion and the political fervor of World War II. In the underground movement, the, the underground resistance in Germany, and if you read his biography and some of the discussions that took place between him and his wife, him and his fellow pastors, and him and his in-laws, I believe his father-in-law had a lot of, a lot of influence on him, he struggled deeply with what was happening in Germany, the persecution of the church under the Nazis. And he allowed that emotion and the politics of his day and the underground movement to sway him. And it talks about the agonizing decision he came to when he decided that he's going to have to get involved. For the sake of the church and freedom in Germany for the Christian church, something needs to change. And he became involved, more involved in the underground movement and directly involved in the attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was caught and executed. I think it just shows what can happen, you know, when a person starts to shift in your thinking. Now, the doctrine of non-resistance is deeply embedded in the two-kingdom teaching of the Scripture, and I refer to that several times. You know, there's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. If we don't keep that clear in our minds, we will never be able to have the doctrine of non-resistance clear. We will, we will revert to pacifism. That there's two separate kingdoms. It's not just about even, um, you know, warfare. That's only one part of it. It's why we do not vote in, in political elections. Because we believe that that is that, that kingdom and this is the kingdom of Christ. And we are, we are part of this kingdom, not that kingdom. We are in the world, as Jesus said, but not of the world. The political systems of this world are under the prince of the power of darkness. The scripture makes that very clear. Yes, God is sovereign. God is controlling all of that. But, um, but the two-kingdom principle, we must understand and, and keep clear. It is foundational to a consistent application of the doctrine of non-resistance. Now, what determines whether, whether someone is a pacifist or non-resistant person, I think is their view of God and the view of the two-kingdom principle. And that, that is going to be the difference. And I know there's people that, you know... Say, well, as a true Christian, you should be concerned about the nation. You should try to get in the right people in government so that it's good for the church. But that's crossing the lines, you see. And you get, you get that all confused after a while. And you end up with, you know, one uh, or two kingdoms in the same realm um, and inter- intersecting each other. It's why we don't believe it's right to be a police officer and carry arms it's, or be in the military, or be in a political position in government, because that involves the kingdom of this world. And we belong to the kingdom of Christ. That's a different kingdom. And uh, so those two stand, as it were, side by side. Now, when 
a person's view of God changes. I said before that the difference between pacifism and non-resistance involves their view of God. When the view of God changes, it also will change their view of the world. And then the world is no longer, or the kingdom of this world, is no longer something from which Christians should separate themselves. Because it's more like, okay, well, you need to get involved. And I've had people tell me, well, you need to get your people to vote and to get the right people in office, you know, to stop the slide of, of apostasy and the uh, degradation of society. And on the surface, it, it sounds like a good idea. But at the same time, what happens is the world then is no longer something from which the Christian turns away and separates himself but rather it's something where the Christian then becomes involved in. And finally, you know, politics is not going to change the hearts of men. Politics is not going to change the course of human history. Only Jesus Christ will do that. And if you start mixing politics with that, then you're looking at social programs and all of that to try to fix the ills of society when Jesus says, you know what's going to, fill, uh, going to solve the ills of society? It's a change of heart. It's the new birth. People need Jesus. They don't need better politics. We enjoy when politics are favorable to, to a, a Christian's belief and practices and lifestyle. But that's not our purpose in the world. Our purpose is to present Jesus Christ as the answer to the ills of society. Not making politics better. And again, when we cross those lines, they become blurred. And after a while, you can, if you go follow that right down, you will come to the point of believing in just war. In other words, you have a right to go to war. Now, this takes us to the next thing, and that is, what about the teaching of dualism? Dualism is, well, let me think of it this way. We're talking about the two kingdoms. Now, what about dualism? This is some of the distorted teachings about the two kingdoms, which is in relation to dualism. Now, the Roman church has taught for centuries that two realms exist within one Christian society. And so you go back to the Reformation time when all the whole community was basically one religion, which was Catholicism, and... <clears throat> And then, of course, when someone stood against that, like the Anabaptists did, they were persecuted. And, and so the Roman church, in getting out around this whole thing of the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, they taught, well, there's two realms in, in one Christian society. They said it was the lay realm on the one side who can use the lower righteousness of the sword. That's a quote. Use the lower righteousness of the sword. And then there's the monastic or... The priestly realm, which was the religious, you know, priests and all of those, the church, in, in a sense, well, not the church, because everybody was part of the church. The lay was part of the church, too. But the priestly realm, the priests and the, and the monks and those, in that realm, they held to the ways of Jesus. And so they, they held to the, the way of Jesus in the peace and all of that to individuals. But the lay realm, the magistrates, were the ones that used the lower righteousness of the sword and carried out the law. That's how they got out around it. Well, Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli came along, 
and the Protestants, most Protestants still believe this today, they believed in the two realms in the individual person's life. And I know this sounds like a contradiction, but if you stop and think about it, it's exactly true. Even though we can't make really sense out of it from a scriptural perspective. But the two realms in each, each person's life. In other words, as a person, half of you or part of you has a responsibility to the public welfare or the national welfare. And the other part of you has responsibility to the sacred or the religious or the teachings of Jesus part. And so you can be two, two people. I mean, you can be one person, but be involved in two different realms yourself. And so in that is, when Jesus says to love your neighbor, that means I, I love my neighbor. But when the, when the government comes along and says, we want you to come carry the sword and to be a part of the armed forces, well, that, then you're, you're responsible to, to the government. And you're not responsible to love your neighbor. That's not your neighbor. That's, your, that's a threat to the national um, survival or, or um, it's an ex- existential threat. And so you could, be, you could be both. You could be a Christian, love your neighbor, and also be a Christian and believe in just war and go to war. That's a contradiction. It, it, it just really, when you boil it down, it makes no, no logical sense. The scriptures teach, and we looked at some of these scriptures already, maybe not in depth, but they're familiar to us. The scriptures teach, and in history, the Anabaptists believe in two separate realms, the two kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness. Politics, national, um, the political scene, the national army, the navy, air force, police force, all of those things, the court systems of the world, the, um, the rulers, all belong to the kingdom of this world. A Christian, child of God, belongs to the kingdom of Christ, and therefore the kingdom of light. The church is a separate entity from the rest of society, and therefore part of the kingdom of Christ. And they did not believe that those were ever fused together, because they believed, we believe from the scriptures, that those two kingdoms will never mix. It's light and darkness. Jesus made that very clear. In other words, the world lives, but this is a quote, Now, uh, from the Schleitheim Confession of Faith, the world lives by the lower standard of the sword given by God to order the realm outside the perfection of Christ. That's what the Anabaptists said. All Christians live by the way of Jesus, teaching for his kingdom. Now, in closing, three main principles in the scriptures on non-resistance. I'm not going to say much about these. But these truths were lived out by Christ and the apostles. We are not to use violence in any form against evil perpetrated against us. And so the the, uh, martyrs went to their deaths many times, refusing to defend themselves against the evil that was perpetrated against them. We are to suffer unjust treatment openly and patiently. We are to always respond to the hate and evil uh, perpetrated against us with love and kindness. We read that in the scriptures. We overcome evil with good. Sometimes the question is raised, what about defending the innocent or the helpless? It's a tough question. 
One thing about non-resistance is, in general, I believe, it, ha- it relates to, when it comes to personal, when it's against me as a person, I, under, under the authority of the scriptures, I would not retaliate to save myself. What about an innocent child? If you see somebody beat up on an innocent child, what would you do? I do believe, and I say this carefully, because the line could be crossed pretty easily, but I do believe that sometimes the most loving thing to do would be to restrain the person from committing evil. I'm not talking about violence. But I do believe at times that there would be right to restrain that person from injuring an innocent person not the use of the sword, not the use of violence. I'm talking about just to prevent someone from committing evil. But the principle be very careful that it doesn't come back to us in retaliation and revenge on our part. That'd be an interesting discussion to have, how that fits into all of this. What are the battle lines in closing now? What are our battle lines in preserving this doctrine? few things. We need to keep a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches about not resisting evil. In other words, we need to read these scriptures. Make sure they're in our hearts. We understand them. We're, we're, we're indoctrinated with scripture. That's how we, at, at, at a moment's notice, or you say a day's notice, or a week's notice, would be able to answer the questions of why we believe what we believe. The scriptures are within. And um, I think that's important. We must guard against the, the threat of dualism creeping into our thinking, which is so prominent in so-called Christendom around us today. The dualism. We need to love our neighbor, but it's okay to go kill someone that's not my next door neighbor Um, to fight it's okay to be part of the kingdom of Christ but then go fight for for the loyalty to the kingdom of darkness it doesn't work so we must guard against the threat of dualism creeping into our thinking we must also keep the two kingdom doctrine teaching clear we talked about that it's so important is foundational for so many things in relation to right living in the Christian life today. Also, if we belong to Christ's kingdom, I think we need to be very careful that we do not get caught up in the emotion, opinions, and politics that involve the kingdom of this world. And I will say with shame that at times I have failed in that. To give opinions to express emotion or frustration about the politics of our day. That's not our job. That belongs to the kingdom of darkness. Last evening I was reading some of the testimonies of people, Christians, that had to face some very difficult situations in Russia in years gone by. One researcher as a Christian, was over there and visiting with some of the underground churches 
He was trying to get their feel of, this was back during the Cold War, trying to get their feel of their relationship to the government and how they felt. And he, he visited different of those underground churches, and he could never get them to say something bad about Putin. It was back when Putin was just, just come to power. They said, that's not our job. Our job is to spread the word of Jesus Christ. And they refused to comment. They can say, well, it's because they might get in trouble. No, this is a pretty safe environment there. They could have said it without. It was an in- intimate conversation. They refused to say a bad word about him. That was a challenge. Think about that. You think about the Apostle Paul under Nero, one of the most despicable leaders, world leaders in history. What did Paul say? He's a minister of God to thee for good. Obey him, in other words, obey him where you can. Pray for him. Respect him. That's true non-resistance. That's true understanding of the two different kingdoms of this world and refusing to cross that line. So I, I say that to myself, to all of us this morning. Let's be careful because, you know, if some of the conscientious, object, conscientious objectors in years gone by, had been known, and they were tracked, they were spied on, to see how they lived and what they said and their whole lifestyle, so that when they came to the, to the draft board, some of that evidence at the time was brought up. Their, their driving record, you know, and, and all those things were on the table. And they viewed that as whether or not they were conscient, true conscientious objectors or not. I remember reading about one man that had said a lot about, had a lot to say about politics, and he got to the, he got to the interview with the draft board, and they told him they had documented the things that he had been saying about the government, and they said, "You're not a conscientious objector. You're the kind of men that we need in the army." It's a challenge for us. Also. We need to exercise a non-resistant spirit towards all men. That includes all our relationships. We talked about this before a little bit. In the brotherhood, in how we talk about each other, grudges, all those things. Is it really a non-resistant spirit that rules our hearts? Lastly, our relationship with the church. Some young men that were drafted were not very supportive of their local church. And they did not pass the test as a conscientious objector. They looked at that and said, you're not submitting to authority there. Why would we take your word for it that you're a genuine conscientious objector? That's something to think about. In closing, 1 Peter 3, 14-16, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that as they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that speak false, that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Philippians 1.29 but unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. 
I'll go back to the question I started with. If you were called tomorrow to appear before a military draft board, would you qualify to be a conscientious objector? Something to think about. Whether that'll happen, whether there'll ever be another draft, I do not know. God knows. But let's be sure that we rest our faith, our lives, on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the foundation that will never be destroyed. Let's kneel to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenges of your word that comes to us. May these truths be deep in our hearts, deep in our convictions. We know who we are as your children, as a part of your kingdom, and not a part of the kingdom of this world. Father, we thank you for the clarity that it gives to us. And also thank you, Father, for the blessing it is to us and the security of knowing that all things are under your watchful eye and your caring heart, and that you will not allow us to be tempted above that which we are able, but will give a way of escape. And Father, may each of us be faithful. Father, we do not want to live in any fear, but to live in faith. We can know that you already are in the future, know the future, understand it all. Father, we just pray in these last days that we might be faithful to you. And regardless of what we are called to face, may we have your word as our foundation, our guidance. And Father, we also pray for the many in the world today who are struggling to serve you, are facing difficult situations and trials. We just pray for them and strengthen their faith, and may they be um, faithful to you in all things. And Father, we just pray that you would help each of us. Bless our young people as they face you know, these challenges, that they would also be true to you. Make sure that their lives are exhibiting your power and your love and your stability. So, Father, bless each of us. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Yeah.